This week's episode of Screen Talk is brought to you by Viceland, presenting Gaycation, a new TV show with Ellen Page, for your Emmy consideration. What's a Gaycation? Gaycation can be anything. A collection of experiences that can be inspiring, can be emotional, can be scary. Actor Ellen Page and her best friend Ian Daniel travel the world to meet people and hear their stories. From the smallest gay bar in Japan to Brazil, where a country so open has seen so much homophobia, to America, where moving stories of struggle and triumph are found in our own backyard. The Wall Street Journal calls Gaycation a new genre of its own, the socially conscious travel show. Watch now on Viceland and consider Gaycation for outstanding, unstructured reality program. Welcome to Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, the Deputy Editor and Chief Film Critic, joined as always by Ann Thompson from Thompson on Hollywood. And here we are, I'm back from my various West Coast travels, and it seems like a relatively quiet time in the summer, but there's a whole bunch of stuff opening this week that while we've addressed it in the past, I think the fact that these things are coming out in the theaters allows us to come back to some of the things we've discussed before from a different kind of angle, because now people can really go see these things. And let's start with probably the one that most people are talking about, at least in our little corner of the world. The Neon Demon. Yeah, I was going to say, not Independence Day, Neon Demon. No, we had a clue at Cannes where, of course, we anticipated it because we, I mean, I was one of the people who really liked Drive a lot, you know, and he was returning, Nicholas Winding Refn was returning to Los Angeles, and, you know, he was giving his usual sort of um, provocative interviews, uh, you know, and uh, when we, in the movie was received in a very divisive and controversial way, and now people can judge for themselves, but I could tell, you could tell, we could all tell at IndieWire how much interest there was in the movie. Well, Drive, I think Drive actually worked out pretty well for him. I mean, you have to remember, this is a guy who's been making movies for 20 years. He started out in his early 20s. By the time he was in his 30s, he had already made this really remarkable feature, uh, set of features, the, the Pusher trilogy that was this really great kind of criminal mythology. And he Mads had Mikkelsen. Yeah, great distinctive vision, right? kind of gritty but also building on the vibe of early exploitation films so you know like Tarantino taking something that he loved about movies and funneling it through his own vision so this is a fully realized filmmaker by the time Drive kicks him into I don't want to say global stardom but that was a crossover moment that movie did really well it's it's fun it was a great gosling performance it it had it toyed with genre in really interesting ways but it was um, also the most lively energetic active kind of um uh lean and spare and and well narratively executed as well as great acting you know Carrie Mulligan and so forth this movie is way more um, like his other I mean I liked Bronson too by the way he discovered Tom Hardy I loved I also loved the movie that he made in um, with Mads the one where he's wandering around Was is it called Valhalla yeah that's great it's like this kind of beautiful a real Viking story. But these other films are very flat, and that is his 
that is what drive was not. And and I would say the neon, the neon demon is returning to a relatively uh, lethargic, is the word I would use, uh, execution. Well, no, Only God Forgives was lethargic. Only God Forgives was pure lethargy in some ways. I mean, he was try, going for a certain, using a certain kind of gravitas to imbue each scene with like almost like meta dread. Like it wasn't a real event that you were watching, but it felt like something really dramatic was about to happen in every scene. And then it just, I, I, my take on it was it was just sort of under-realized. Like there wasn't a payoff. There wasn't enough going on there to kind of justify the way that this movie was designed to be so grim and, and fatalistic. This one is sort of a consolidation of what he was doing there and what he was doing in Drive. So I, some of the drawbacks, I think, are, are that that kind of unearned gravitas, I think, are, are distracting. But in other parts of it, it's gorgeous. It's oh, it's vivid. beautiful, but it's a lot of tableaus. I mean, he's taking yeah. the fashion world. He has something to say, but what he has to say could be said in five minutes, you know. I mean, it, he it, he has right. an, an, an agenda, but he's not giving us much depth at all. There's really not much going on. It's a I lot of beauty. I a little bit on that. I mean, it, to say that it doesn't, I mean... It's not dumb. I don't think that, that it's it's as thin as I, I would say that the the things that I, that they don't quite work about this movie are, are more just that it takes a long time to build up to something that that feels a, a little bit rushed by the end, and that in some ways it, there's more movie there than there needs to be. It could be tighter, but these are sort of technical complaints. I, I agree, think. it could be tighter, but if it were, it wouldn't be very long. But from a from the perspective of somebody who really loves like a, an exciting genre film, I mean, I, I think that what this movie does viscerally is really exciting, and, and that a lot of what it does on on the level of horror and dread, when things get really messed up, when the blood and guts start flying, is uh, surprisingly effective in the sense that it's it's based in a very specific kind of atmospheric dread. Um, there's a lot of stuff that do- is done by implication, but when he feels like he has to go for certain extremes, those happen too. So I, I will give him one thing. Uh, Kate um, uh, Erbland, our film editor in New York, uh, wrote a piece which I, I recommend where he where she actually had the, the rather good idea of interviewing the women in the cast about its sort of underlying critique of how women in show business compete with each other, that that is what it's really about. And and they and they, I, I, I would actually argue that I like the, the, her piece better than the, than the movie. That if the movie had dug into this a little more, it might be a better uh, exercise. Sure, but that would be a different kind of movie. I mean, I, I don't think that this is a guy asking big questions. This about is an exercise culture. in style. This is a this is what a this is a movie where you're you're humming the sets and you're really not listening to what anyone has to say. But I have to tell you, I mean, there are people I know who swear by Revan. I mean, it just they, they think he's just one of the great filmmakers working today. And, and I will give him this. I think that he has a particular kind of vision. It is uncompromising, and there's a skill with which he realizes it, and that's undeniable. Um, you could tell that the premise of this movie is also designed to have a certain kind of effect, right? I mean, whereas Only God Forgives was such a dud at Cam, this was a calculated provocation. I he didn't agree with that. Everybody was not going to love this movie. No, but I bet they check it out. And that's one thing that he manages to do. He manages to get under your skin. He manages to create things for people to talk about, even if they aren't really justified in the movie. I mean, some of the stuff he gets to at the end that you're talking about is outrageous. It's almost laughable. It's almost risible. Yeah. 
But but is it still? <laughs> You're not arguing with me. No, why would I argue with you? Because I, I, what I'm saying is I don't know if that's a mistake. I think that the self awareness, you know, can't be humor is something that you can embrace, that you can roll with. I mean, that, that's part of the charm. And when when it does have a when it is kind of amusingly absurd, it's actually working exactly the way that it should work. When it's trying to be something else, when it's trying to be a grim drama, I think that it loses some some of, of what's so appealing about it and what's so appealing about this filmmaker. But I also think that this is a really fascinating commercial proposition because some people see the, the trailer or the, the poster or whatever and they're like, not for me, I don't like those kind of movies. A lot of other people, I mean, this is a movie that definitely seems like there's an audience for it. People want to go see it. And Amazon Studios, which took this movie to Canada, is now working with Broad Green on the theatrical release. I think they stand to do pretty well with it. This one? Uh, yes. I think this yeah. is going to do okay for them. Uh, I think this is going to fall in the category of smart horror, which for which there is a real audience, the same audience that went to see The Witch or, or went to see... Um, let the, what's the name of the one I love? Um, David. Let the right one Mitchell. in. No, not that one. Oh, oh it follows. Thank you. Yeah, no, let the let the right one in was a good movie, but it didn't do very well. Right, but it, but uh, something like uh, something like it follows. I mean, that was like an abstract horror film with a really specific premise. I mean, Neon Demon isn't quite as highbrow as it follows in that sense. It's a little more outrageous. But um, if the commercial prospects are, are similar, I mean, that would really go a long way to kind of addressing the Amazon hype, right? I mean, this is a company that has generated a lot of press around their very existence so far. But well, what was interesting is that they got the five movies at Cannes, right? But they didn't all turn out to be the five hits of Cannes or the five well-reviewed movies of Cannes. You know, they, there was a range there. Um, I think they're going to get some of their own back just at the box office with Neon Demon. Right. But, I mean, they spent $20 million on the Woody Allen movie. This is not a company that's even necessarily looking to make a profit, right? No, they're looking for the people who are, are, are uh, subscribing to, to increase. They're looking for eyeballs to increase. They're, they're looking for more customers. It's a very different, more customers for everything on Amazon, not just... Uh, movies. They're looking for people to browse around the site and and order things. That's that's what they're looking for. So the, in addition to Neon Demon, they also have Todd Solon's movie Wiener Dog opening this week, which was one of their they're, Sundance movies. Right. They actually acquired that out of Sundance, and this is a movie that, I mean, Todd Solon's has a long-standing relationship with Ted Hope, who's the head of Amazon Studios or the head of content or whatever his title is now. And that relationship, you know, it makes sense that they would work together in this movie. It's n not even, I mean, as clean a category as you could put Neon Demon into from a commercial perspective, there is no clean category you can put this wiener dog movie into. I loved it. Um, Are you a Todd Solondz fan? I mean, did, did you like Happiness and, and all the I, other movies? Yeah, I mean... Pound drums, less so, but they, yeah. they all have something. It's a consistent world. But this is, to me, his 
one of his most outrageous statements, this very eclectic ensemble piece in which this wiener dog goes from family to family and Sons explores some characters familiar from his other films, some newcomers. Uh, Danny DeVito plays a disgruntled screenwriter instructor who seems like basically an avatar for Sons' own kind of desperation trying to get his movies made today. So in that sense, it's a very personal movie. Um, but his, his storytelling is very surreal. It goes from being sad to being very funny to being tragic and these little moments. And you know, I, I think it's really great, but I don't know who goes to see that movie. Not too many. To see that movie. Not too many. And so, so what, when we talk about a, a strategy for a company like Amazon, this brand, big brand name company that was booed at Cannes probably just because they were the big corporation at Cannes, how do we reconcile something like Wiener Dog with something like Neon Demon when they're both opening the same week? Well, they did some kind of algorithm, you know, to, to you know, they presumably didn't spend very much on Wiener Dog. And, and if it but has a theatrical the- life, it's not going to be very big. It'll, it'll do its business the way they need it to, which is to bring people over to Amazon. So, so we're seeing two different things going here. One is sort of a safe commercial bet of sorts, and the other is more of like a branding thing. I think they do. What, from what I understand, they have done the math on how many people on the Amazon site are likely to look at this movie and want to see it. They, 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 and th- th- by the way, this is Ted Hope having an old relationship with the filmmaker and coming through for him. Right. So I, I actually, I'm fascinated by this particular moment. I mean, Ted Hope is starting to come back into the world, right? Did this piece last week kind of highlighting one of his talks. It was his first talk in two years. He's about to do another one in Carlo Vivari. I'm so fascinated by the idea of this massive company trying to make inroads with an industry that isn't necessarily so you know easy to make money on. I mean, but they don't they have could... to make money the way other people make money. That's what's so brilliant about it. You know, the the metrics that we use, like I have, you know, if you look at the box office charts on Sunday, you know, the two stories we do, the indie story and the and the studio story, the ten takeaways, whatever. Um, you know, you 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 look at what it does in box office, what it was, what what money went out to pay for it, how how much money was spent on marketing, how much you know, what is the half you know, 50% of what was done in the theaters, it's going to come back, what's going to come back in the ancillary markets, you know, all of those metrics do not apply to Amazon. I don't know, but Amazon. It, I, here's the thing, I, I love Silicon Valley, I watch it every week, I'm fascinated by the way that it gets into this corporate culture in which everybody tries to come up with a way to make their business model seem like it's above the metrics that define you know, traditional business, that it's it's more about branding, it's more about an original concept and all these different kinds of things. But a huge company like Amazon can also have a hiring freeze or can have a shortfall and then make cuts and so well, forth. Well, they're so not even, in that space at the moment. I mean, they are well, in huge, huge growth mode. And so I, is Netflix. And the likelihood is that in the next five years, both of these companies are going to take over <laughs> the world as, that we live in as we know it. So well, what's I, I interesting even, is that the know. people that are running Amazon studios underneath uh, the Roy Price, who's the son of Frank Price, who used to run 
studios. Um, you know, he was at Columbia. He was at Universal. Right. Yeah, yeah, these people, are Ted Hope and, and Bob Burney and, and Scott Foundas, these are people who come from the indie world, who come from theatrical distribution and production and, and, and the old school. That, and they have the relationships with the filmmakers and they can go to festivals and care about, you know, knowing who a Jim Jarmusch would be and, and having that relationship that they could pull him in with, with Patterson, which was also at Cannes. You know, so, but, but inside the, the metrics of Amazon itself, I would love to know, you know, as you're saying, what, 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 what defines success? Absolutely. I mean, I guess I am pulling for this company because of what they technically could do for film culture at an incredibly desperate moment for the future of the medium. At the same time, as a journalist, I'm, I'm skeptical. I was skeptical of A24 when they first started out and, and had this kind they're of... They're doing okay. Work. Yeah, now they're doing really well. But I mean, it, when somebody they're shows They're the only and company says, that's really appealing look, to the younger demo, a, and that's the most extraordinary thing about them. That's not what's going it, on with Amazon the, either. I, I love that A24 can have a movie like Swiss Army Man opening this week. It's great summer counter-programming. It's so out there and cool, and, and I think people may actually respond to that. But when, when anybody shows up and they, they have you know, a considerable amount of money and this vibe of being, you know, super cool and they're doing something great. I just want them to prove it so that there's nothing disingenuous going on here. And I feel like with Amazon, we haven't yet seen the full proof. I you know, agree I really, with that. And I, I highly doubt that the Woody Allen is going to be super successful in conventional box office terms. I mean, the other thing that people were talking about um, was the question of whether Amazon was going to enter the Oscar space. And they want to. And, of course, they do, and that's part of the strategy of going to CinemaCon and telling everybody that they're in the theatrical business. That's part of the strategy of taking something like Manchester by the Sea, which was a big hit at Sundance, which is an extraordinarily good movie, which has every hallmark of an Oscar contender. Uh, believe me, it, it, is got, it, is, it is there. So the question is, you know, do they, do they do everything right in a way that Netflix did not do with Beasts of No Nation? And I think that they have the elements to do that. It'll cost well, them. Yeah, of course. I mean, they, it already has $10 million that they spent on this movie at Sundance. I mean, it's a quiet drama about a guy trying to put his life back together. It it's may not... be it may be uh, one of those, well, the, <laughs> the, a quiet drama, but a very deeply moving and emotional one. That's but let's the talk, key. Let's talk about that. For, I mean, it, that this is, is the this key. Is, it's an awards movie, but it's an awards movie in the way that say, Birth of a Nation is an awards movie. And what I mean by that is we know when you, when you see Manchester by the Sea, it's got this great Casey Affleck performance. Kenneth Largan's screenplay is, is superb. Um, it's not... As is his big, directing. It's a small it's, movie, though. It's a small movie. So, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's not an in-the-bedroom kind of movie. It's, yeah, it's, I mean, that would be the comparison, which did make it to a Best Picture nomination in its year during the height of the Weinstein, you know, Harvey Weinstein being a, uh, an Oscar uh, whisperer. So basically what you're saying is if Amazon gets a Best Picture nomination for this movie, that will be the, the victory it needs at this stage. It's a, it's a, it's a step in, in if, if that's what they want. You know, I would argue that Netflix you, you know, would do well to sort of admit what it is and, and what it isn't. And, and, you know, it's basically in the world of, of television. It's in the world of documentaries. It's in the world of, of, of series. You know, it isn't in the theatrical world. 
It doesn't well, want to I mean, be. They, they seem to have admitted that by implication. They don't necessarily need to come out and say, yep, we didn't really do service to Beasts of No Nation last year with that kind of tossed off theatrical release. So this time we're just not even going to bother with that. I would say so. I would say that's the right thing to do, to, to, to sort of embrace what you are and, and embrace your, your differences. Uh, Amazon is trying to have it both ways, and it's going to be very interesting to, to watch because they have had some films that maybe shouldn't have gone out theatrically, like the, the Elvis Nixon movie. Yeah, that was a flop. That was an absolute flop. I mean, who's going to go see that movie? You know what was the what was the play there, there and, and the spike the Spike Lee movie certainly generated a lot of headlines, but it wasn't. Uh, well, you know, that that worked for them, I would say. I, th- it, I think that's a that's a that's a question. You of, could argue uh, it, it worked better than it would have in the hands of a smaller distributor. I mean, was it the phenomenon that it could have been? It was the best received, best attended Spike Lee movie in many years. <laughs> Spike was deliriously really happy. Numbers to really see what that means. <laughs> you know, he's, he can. Yeah, I, he's he's grateful. Trust me on that. Well, in, in any case, it, it will be interesting to see how the next few months go for this company, and and I think that um, one of the things that that I that I do think is exciting about it is that they are working in a familiar space with, with, with movies and filmmakers that we do want to see more from. And, you know, as long as they can hold on to that and be a heavy hitter in this space, they're going to keep the conversation interesting. They're going to keep I think t- they are going to have to move into a more sophisticated and developed marketing space, I would say. I mean, that's where they're under uh, manned. How would you define that marketplace, though? Because everybody has their own way. Part of what's going on with Amazon that I find sort of just, well, what's the word? Uh, I have to assume this is a temporary solution, the idea that they're going with individual distributors on each of their individual films and they're making those. So so they don't, they're, they're basically not managing uh, entirely the theatrical marketing and, and release components of, of, their, of their films. And I would say that to the extent that they want to succeed, they're going to figure that out. They're going to figure out how to do that with one entity and, and with, with a more uh, unified uh, and, and well-orchestrated uh, marketing team. Oh, so many unknown variables. It's this, <laughs> the suspense. Suspense is killing me on this one. It's been like it's like we keep coming back to Amazon. What's Amazon going to do next? You know, and, and the the their inability to comment directly on most of this stuff just makes us speculate even more. So um, the next few months should be interesting in that regard. So I love that we can go a good twenty odd minutes and not even talk about Independence Day. Although I have to, which say, I still haven't <laughs> seen. I haven't either, and and. They Fox. didn't screen it for me, I might add. I mean, I'm sure if I chased them down, I might have gotten into it. But uh, There's a whole story about this that I think is, is worth sussing out, which is that uh, the, the trade reviews that you will find out there that, that ran earlier this week came out of UK screenings. This happens. Uh, this happens right. whenever this they was, do an opening done, earlier. This was done very much in a, a, as the result of a design. The, the press screenings for Independence Day stateside were set Friday morning after the movie even came out. So 
in, in other words, they were trying to limit the amount of critical reaction so that to a large degree, the U.S. audiences were seeing this movie and anticipating this movie on the basis of marketing alone. And uh, it seems like that might work out pretty well for them. I mean, this is the... Uh, it gets, the word gets out, you know. Think of the word gets out pretty quickly. But people want to see another Independence Day movie 20 years later. I mean... Well, find out. It's, it, I, I find that this kind of franchise element fascinating to some degree because it's like, this doesn't even look like... A sequel, as much as it's just Ron Emerick just making the same movie, you know, or, or try, just return. Especially, I have to say that Roland this. Emmerich has been a guilty pleasure of mine on, a, on the original Independence Day. I really liked, and it was and it was good because he was not going super CG with it. He was still doing miniatures and and even even uh, the day after tomorrow which was and 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 I loved that too. He's like flooding New York City and everything. He's always done this very good combination of high tech and low tech in terms of the way that he shoots his movies and achieves them. He has an eye. He's actually a skilled filmmaker whether yeah, you know, it's time. of a certain <laughs> kind. No, Let, he's made some terrible away. movies too. God knows uh, Whatever well, the that. Terrible, the, there, there's something that. What terrible. was the Ice Age movie he did? It was so bad. 2012. I was about to say 2012 was. No, I like 2012. That, too. Yeah, it was great. Uh, you, you were thinking of the day after tomorrow. No, which is, the, I liked the day after tomorrow. No, the one that was but, really bad was was uh, you know like a caveman movie. Uh yes, BC. That was horrible. Really yeah. bad. Really, Not really exactly crap. Like yeah. But but I know I agree. I mean I just. There's something that inherently camp campy yeah. about that, yeah. but not like neon demon campy. It's like no, this guy just makes really awful blockbusters. Sometimes you couldn't even mount like a Michael Bay tourist kind of argument in favor of some of these. But things. they're entertaining. But, they're entertaining, yeah. and he knows how to he knows how to give you a good time. That right. I'm not saying that's I'm not the slightest bit interested in seeing Independence Day, the new one, because it's right. it just but, looks but, the but same remember, as the old one. Remember a year ago. Roland Emmerich made Stonewall, which was a total disaster, just a complete disaster. And that was his attempt to make a smaller character-driven drama. So a year after that, he comes back with this ginormous blockbuster sequel to one of his most successful. He also made that movie Anonymous about Shakespeare, which was a sort yeah. of revisionist biopic. That was pretty bad, too. It was, but I, I enjoyed it, too. That was the thing. It, it, was, it, was it so took a stupid. terrible turn. It, it made some really big, goofy mistakes but there's there's something about the way he makes movies that i find entertaining well i mean that's what keeps him employed right this guy's been making movies for a really long time and and no one went to see anonymous that was another failure i mean i'm looking at all this real negative hype for the ghostbusters movie sight unseen versus the fact that it like people really are genuinely excited for another Independence Day movie, and and I find that contrast kind of beguiling. Right? I can't help but think that a lot of the of the blowback on Ghostbusters is is sexist in 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 effect, and that we just have to wait and see, you know, if if it's fun. I mean, Paul Feig, I always get to say his name wrong. He he he's a good. I I really like a lot of the movies that he's made. Uh, the Heat and and and. Spy and you know I'm I'm and I like what what he does with Melissa McCarthy so I'm open minded. I guess the the thing about that is that I wasn't 
I personally would like to think that I wasn't thinking in sexist terms when I was not excited for another Ghostbusters movie before it was even announced that it was all women. I mean, they've been trying to relaunch. The oh, for it's really been a dis- it's it, they've they've they it has been stalling for decades. Now, did they find the best way to relaunch this? Of course, you can't say it's that unseen, but it doesn't seem like the kind of thing that would be easy to win people over either way. I mean, the fact that the original Ghostbusters movies did as well as they did were as fun and, and you well, know... Well, the people who went to see them in the first place are way grown up at this point. Oh, and absolutely. the younger generation has never really, you know, they have nothing invested in it, so it's, it's brand new. We'll see. We shall see. There's a lot of different possibilities there. So I want to add just one more item for us to discuss this week, and turning to a more tragic note, and that's the death of Anton Yelchin, which hit us completely out of nowhere on Sunday. It was like one of those things where you see the item and you, you do a double take, be, not only because it's just shocking, but just because it's, something seems off about it. I mean, a 27-year-old guy, not at the peak of his career, on the verge of what might have been a great moment because he had done so many amazing performances and was gearing up for another stage. He was going Suddenly to direct dying, a even, movie. He was going to direct his first feature in three weeks. We did a story on it, and, and if you look at what the, what he was lining up there, I mean, he had Sean Price Williams as the cinematographer, the guy who, who shot Heaven Knows What and uh, all kinds of other really interesting indies, Queen of Earth. Um, and then uh, Marilyn Manson was talking about doing the score. He had Aaliyah Shawkat in the cast. Um, he was talking about all kinds of reference points, Darden Brothers, Gaspar Noe. I mean, this was a guy who really was thinking about how to evolve as an artist, even as he had this large commercial presence. And a lot of times... Because Star Trek these- is coming up. That would be oh, the, the yeah, main thing. The, but then a lot of times you hear about these people... And and they're they're moving too fast. And what's that line? You get you fly too close to the sun, you get clipped. He wasn't one of those people. He this is a guy who was very Just productive. He was very well liked. All the people who worked with him thought he was a sweet, soulful, incredibly gifted actor. Um, and I went back and looked at uh, one of my favorite films of his, like Crazy. And I was just struck again by what a lovely, sensitive extraordinarily expressive actor he was. Um, yeah, I had the pleasure to talk to him at the uh, Hamptons Film Festival in 2011. They gave him a Breakthrough uh, Performer Award for Like Crazy. And uh, we had a really interesting exchange because at first he, w- he was giving me some canned answers about you know why he does what he does. He feels really lucky, yada, yada, yada. And I was like, look, every actor says that. What, what is it that you're really gunning for? You know? And he's like, well, I've been doing this a really long time. It's nice that, that people recognize that, but there, there's something else that I really want to do. And he started talking about his interest in producing and directing. He mentioned the Mar- Martha, Marcy May Marlene guys and Borderline Films Collective as, as a group of people who were really interesting to him. And the fact that actors who can take their careers in a number of different directions would stop to consider something of that nature, the idea that it is possible to find some kind of creative satisfaction outside of, you know, kind of just climbing the rungs of the studio system. I mean, that's a big leap, but it's one that I think is worth calling out. And since he never completed that transition, it can also be his defining legacy. Is It's just that this is a guy who is willing to take risks. And, you know, more actors and aspiring directors 
could benefit from doing that, irrespective of how much success they've already had. A lot of them do. A lot of them do. Um, he he was uh, the other thing that haunted me was just as I think a lot of people responded because it was such an a random, haphazard, fluky, anomalous thing. You know, you know, sure. and what the hell was going on with the Jeep and neutral and, and right. you know, and I was so relieved to hear that he was probably uh, able to go meet his maker in a, in a quick way, which which was a very disturbing aspect of, of this when we didn't know, you know, exactly what happened. But we all are reminded that we are, you know, a blink away from uh you know, nothing, nothing's for sure in, our, in this world, especially the one we live in right now. And, and he helped in a weird way to sort of remind us all of that. And one of the things that was a little bit heartening uh, in a terrible situation was just the way the IndieWire team sort of comforted each other and, you know, pulled together and sort of tried to, to find him and meet him and and remember him in a in a good way and it was a it was a it was lo- it was it was a lovely thing in a, in, a, in a strange way right if I that mean, makes it, any it, sense it's it's not about a, you know exploiting a story it's more about trying to figure out what what is the legacy of this person why is this a story why do people care and what can we do to to salute it so that and I, honor I mean, him yes yeah, and exactly. celebrate him so on a down to, note, yeah, I know. I was going to say next week we have all kinds of different things to talk about. Hopefully, nothing so tragic. The BFG is opening. The purge election year is coming out. Tarzan's coming out. All kinds of. It's going to be an eclectic week. So hopefully, we'll, we'll have uh, a lot of different things to look ahead to, and and, and plenty of reasons to be idealistic about cheerful. the future. Cheerful. Exactly. Reasons to be cheerful. Part three. Okay. Yeah, here's to that. Bye bye.